Good, yeah, so we are getting into our Elder Determined Sermon series that we do traditionally in the summer, and um, this morning we're kicking that off, and so each week one of our elders is going to be coming up here and preaching through the book of First Peter, and uh, yeah, I would encourage you this morning to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to First uh, Peter, particularly the passage that Linda just read, thank you for that, Linda, and um yeah, I would also encourage you to read through the book of First Peter uh, each week as we preach. See if you can pick out the themes that Peter is passionate about in this letter of his. And come prepared on Sunday to dig deeper into God's word as we are challenged to live our lives accordingly. So VBS was this week. It was an exciting time. Uh, the kids, they had a, um, a missions section in the program where they learned about the difference between church missions and church outreach. And this was led by our very own missions team here at Harvest Decatur. And uh, the team shared with the kids some of the work of our partnering missionaries. And one of, the, um, one of them that was highlighted was the Adana Baptist Church in Turkey. And just for reference point, and I think this uh, uh, geography fun fact is interesting, maybe a bit nerdy, but interesting. Adana is in the lower portion of Turkey, and these areas that are mentioned in our text this morning, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Benthinia, were from the uh, eastern and northern and central and western portions of what we now know as Turkey. Jesus, his church, continued to, to spread from Jerusalem to all over the world, even if some of that spreading was by force and caused these believers, these refugees, to live in foreign lands. And so we are going through uh, this series called Living Hope, and I, I trust we will all be encouraged by Peter that this living hope, even in the face of opposition and living as refugees in this life, we have an active promise in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He suffered and was crucified, yet he now lives and offers us the hope of living with him. Therefore, we no longer must fight for our own glory and significance, but can be holy and obedient in how we submit to one another in living as the people of God. So this morning, we will be digging deeper into Peter's first words here in his letter, and, and these words give us an overview of the whole letter, and with that, we'll be looking at where this living hope comes from. And our first point is to answer that question is, it comes from the inheritance of the Father. You can write that down as our first point, the inheritance of the Father. In verse 3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How many of you have heard the phrase before, born again? Do you know that that's only recorded in the New Testament about four times? Twice when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus when it's first mentioned, and twice here in 1 Peter. So really, all in all, this phrase was not commonly used in the early church, but that does not take away from the potency in which Peter uses it here. We are born again, given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection, this new life of Jesus Christ. This past Easter, uh, Pastor Ryan spoke to us on the Apostle Paul's defense of the resurrection of Christ, stating that if we do not have the resurrection, then our faith is pointless. And this is true. The apostles and the authors of the New Testament were so profoundly affected by the resurrection of Jesus to the point of being hunted down, arrested, and killed because they would not profess any other faith except Jesus crucified and raised to life again. Peter says here that it is through the resurrection of Christ that we are given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. When I was younger, you know, I learned John three sixteen and that all who believe in Jesus will not perish but will have everlasting life. But it wasn't until I worked at the Cub Foods grocery store at the age of 16 that I gained an appreciation for the word perishable or perish. I also gained an appreciation for putting grocery carts back in the corral. You see, that was my, that was my job to go out and, and collect the grocery carts and bring them back into the store. And in the dead of winter, it was not a fun time to walk all over the place gathering those carts to get them collected. So if I can, if anything, well, maybe not if anything, encourage you in one point, when you go shopping, <laughs> put the carts back in the corral. Some, some young person will be thankful that you did. But I also learned, as I said, an appreciation for perishable. And there's not a day that I can't go into a grocery store now and, and hear the intercom and listen to what's being said because half my time was to be spent in the store where I would clean up the baby food jar aisle when those would splatter. And I would also have to listen for when the cashier called for perishable items to be returned and I would go take them back. I can easily spot what it is for when a cart has ran over a grape. <laughs> the juice from the smashed grape, uh, sorry, smashed cart covers the wheel. The wheel leaves a track on the floor of a sticky mess that then pulls the dirt off people's shoes as they walk by and you just see these, the splatter and these lanes just everywhere perishable constantly needing cleaned up constantly needing fixed 
constantly ready to spoil and decay. But this inheritance that we have, that we are given by God, is not like a grape that can be knocked over and squashed and run amok. No, this inheritance is imperishable, as well as undefiled or not stained, really unstainable, like a piece of wood that's coated in a wax or a remarkable rug that is impervious to spills. This inheritance from God is unmarkable, unable to be changed or altered. There is no power outside of God that can mar it or blemish it. It is also unfading. It cannot lose its luster. It cannot depreciate in value. It cannot degrade into less than what it will always be. This inheritance given to us by God is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now these these terms, they may not have the significance to us today as they did to Peter and his readers, but rest assured, Peter is describing here is miraculous and life-giving. There's a tradition that Peter and his readers understood from the Old Testament where those who worshiped God would have to follow ritualistic sacrifices. But for our sensibilities, maybe it's better to understand these things as potluck barbecues. There were certainly ways they would have to prepare the sacrifice, but there was a meal to follow. They would cut the animal in certain ways, giving certain cuts to certain people. And it wasn't that they just threw an animal on a fire. They, they separated out, as I said, specific portions for specific purposes, and then people would eat. And the priests, they got to eat steak and lamb chop. The word sacrifice, it, it does, it conjures up in our minds a, a primitive, barbaric, cultish activity. But in reality, if you want to know what it's like to be around a sacrifice, what it smells like, well, then after church today, take a, take a trip down to the corner of Franklin and Decatur Street by P.T.'s Barbecue, and you'll smell the sweet aroma. However, these sacrifices, they... They were offered for religious festival meals, and they were still very ritualistic, full of symbolism. And this ritual was given by God so that people could be close to God by substitution. See, in our Western mind, it's it's difficult to distinguish between the cause of separation to God and his provision for restorative rituals. We tend to think that somehow the rituals change us or make us better people so that we can be close to God again. But in reality, what's taking place is that God has had to provide a way for us to be close to him regardless. The ritual has more to do with the need of substitution because we can no longer freely accept God's provision. I heard this explained recently as imagining God is like the sun. The sun gives light and warmth and energy. And without it, life here on earth is unsustainable. The sun is a very good thing. However, it's also a very powerful thing. And if not treated with the respect its power is due, can be very dangerous. Get exposed 
to too much radiation coming from the sun and death is certain. We must have a protective covering from the sun to appreciate and welcome its goodness. In this regard, God is like the sun and he provides the protective coverings so we can appreciate and welcome his goodness. He has done this from the beginning, revealing only portions of himself and never exposing all of who he is to us. God reveals himself and makes it possible for us to know him. Peter puts it this way. God has caused us to be born again. And it is by God's power that we are being guarded through faith. Blessed be God and Father indeed. How can we not but respond in worship to such an amazing act of grace and faithfulness on his part? Praise God. Not only for what he has done, but because he knew he would do this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, this was an intentional effort on his part to make, give us such an inheritance. So we should praise him. Not only in word, but praise him with our actions as well. Our conduct is to reflect God's goodness in all our conduct. The way we behave, the way we conduct ourselves in society, our relationships, the way we use our talents and skills to produce, we are to do it all in such a way that it is reflective of the inheritance that we have received by faith, an inheritance that comes from God and is by faith. As opposed to reacting to pressures through a doubling down of personal involvement with effort that reflects a mindset, if I don't do this, who will? As opposed to calling out a coworker publicly for attempting to take credit for something we did as opposed to disciplining our children because they make us look like a bad parent, as opposed to exercising authority because we need to feel important. And to paraphrase Jesus, we already have our reward. Peter, on the other hand, he tells us our living hope, it does not come from our own efforts, but is granted and guarded by the Father. When pressures rise, when enemies surface, when struggles abound, do we trust in the inheritance of God and Father or do we trust in the ways of our forefathers? Because problems will come. Suffering in this life is unavoidable. In fact, one of the paradoxical realities of God is that blessings come through suffering, particularly through the suffering of God's Son. Our second point this morning on where we live our hope is from the suffering of the Son. And you can write that down, the suffering of the Son. Look back to verse 6 with me in 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now it may seem like Peter is not talking about Jesus' suffering and is instead referencing our own suffering, and you'd be right to make that assessment. So how is a point to be made about the suffering of the Son, you ask? Well, if you glance down at verse 11 here in chapter 1, you'll see where it is written, the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. And in verse 3, we read, our living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These are contextual clues as to what Peter is thinking. And it's not that we have to decipher some code or, or, or figure out some secret hidden message in the original languages of the Bible, but these remarks by Peter give us an understanding of his train of thought regarding the trials that we face. We may want to feel luxurious and prestigious like gold, but it too comes through fire and will eventually degrade, tarnish, and depreciate in value. Our trials are testing, refining, and proving the genuineness of our faith by facing struggles, just as Jesus did. He suffered because of who he is. And likewise, we will suffer if we follow his way. Have I sufficiently sold you on the way of Christ yet? Ooh, trials and suffering, sign me up. The truth of the matter is, in this life, you will find trouble no matter what. There's something broken about our world. It's a place of pain and anguish, chaos and turmoil, distraction and self-glory, and it requires destruction, death to be made right. But to fully remove humanity's mark of sin, this world will need more than physical destruction. And I think this is why Peter's thoughts go to Noah and the flood later in his letter. To fully remove it, though, it needs new birth. It needs the resurrection of Jesus. This world is pain, but our new lives in Christ are a living hope that sustains us and gives us strength that is beyond ourselves. Through this living hope, we can endure trials and hardships and one day meet face to face the Lord Jesus, our inheritance of great glory. You know, this is, this is really what sets Christianity apart from other religions, worldviews, and ideologies. This new birth this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus was simply another martyr for the faith, then people would be right to choose something that better fits their preference. But Jesus did not just die. He rose above death, literally. The resurrection of Christ, his living after dying, after being buried in a tomb for three consecutive days, to then appear to his closest friends and over 500 people at one time when there was no such thing as deep fake videos. This is not just some made up story. 
This is not some happenstance of the Mandela effect. No, this is a historical reality for our species as a people. The maker of the universe into to our living space walked among us as a man, lived out humanity's original purpose through grace and peace, but suffered as if he was one more person seeking self-fulfillment. And his suffering ended as all our suffering does in death. But the reconstitution of his physical presence, of his physical reality, proves for all eternity that this broken world has no power over him. Nor does it have power over us who are obedient to Christ and covered by his sacrifice. And with all that in mind, Peter writes, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Rejoice with joy. Can we pause on that for a moment? That's like saying be happy with happiness. Or, or, or find contentment with contentment. But how do we get there in the first place? It's hard. It doesn't seem to make sense to me at first. To rejoice with joy in suffering seems near impossible. But I want to be clear here. Peter's not advocating for some sadistic euphoria found in seeking martyrdom. The joy he speaks of is described as indescribable, unspeakable, inexpressible, and filled with glory. Peter is encouraging us that when doubt comes because of opposition, because of suffering, because of various trials, to take comfort in our living hope. On those days of doubts, when it doesn't make sense, when it's hard to see that we are God's chosen and we ask ourselves, am I being foolish for believing all this? Peter says, look ahead to the timed promise of Jesus' return and think of the joyous validation of finally seeing our Lord, knowing through it all we were right all along to praise his name. still seems like hard work, doesn't it? To praise God in the storm, to be thankful for suffering, to rejoice in the face of opposition. But this is where the good news gets better. We do not do this alone. We do not do it on our own. We are called to be holy, but we have the Spirit who is holy, empowering us in ways that even angels don't understand. 
our inheritance comes with a bonus. And this brings us to our third point this morning. Our living hope comes from the holiness of the Spirit. The holiness of the Spirit. Join with me back in verse 10 of chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Through Jesus' resurrection, we have new life that is resilient, genuine in the anticipation of the Father's inheritance revealed in ages past and executed in a time not yet known Peter said concerning this salvation, this salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, this salvation that is the outcome of your genuine faith, this salvation that was prophesied by the Spirit long ago and is by the same Spirit now present in preaching the gospel far and wide, the Spirit who, according to verse 2, makes us sanctified, makes us holy, who by we not only have strength to endure various trials, but gain strength and boldness to proclaim the realities of a Savior that is alive and doing well. We too join in preaching what has been proclaimed. And when people ask why we don't buck and fight like normal people do when up against opponents of our beliefs, or why we don't drown out our sorrows with intoxication and temporary pleasure, we can, by the power of the Spirit, make a defense for the hope, the living hope that is in us. There's so much effort both for and against Christianity that revolves around morals, judgments of what is right. But I think it causes us to miss a lot of what the biblical author's intentions. They call forth a distinction between the fleeting hope of temporary or personal satisfaction from the the living hope given in us by the Spirit of God. Our mission in living by the Spirit is not simply moral lives, but to bear witness of the hope of Christ, the immortal, unstainable, and undepreciable inheritance. I caught a glimpse of a video promo that's being put out tonight, actually, by The Chosen, the show. And they brought in some folks, uh, I think they were in their 20s, They didn't know each other. Uh, They were not particularly church-minded folks. And from what little I saw of their reactions, I was inspired to see more. Not just more of this video, but more of people reacting to the reality of a resurrected Christ. I want to be part of conversations where people ask questions in confusion like Nicodemus, how can one be born again? 
I want to be a, a part of situations where someone's life is changed by the help and healing offered through the church that they ask, what must I do to be saved for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling of his sacrifice and the holiness of the Spirit and according to the prognosis of God the Father. I want to see grace and peace multiplied. What about you, Harvest Cater? What do you want to see? But you know what often holds me back? Complacency and my comfort. Maybe the genuineness of my faith needs to be tested a bit more. Pray with me. Our Father of unbelievable grace and love you have made it possible for us to know you you have made it possible for us to come to you you provide everything and we say thank you Savior, the suffering Son of God. We cry out thank you as well for your faithfulness, your endurance, your ability to love even those who despise and hate you. which at one point was many of us. And to our great spirit of God who is holy and makes us holy, we trust in your ever-present reality. We trust In the conviction you bring, we trust in the encouragement and the boldness and the transformation that you bring about through your word and your presence in our lives and within each other. And to all that, we too say thank you. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for loving us so much that you give up everything. Thank you for being near and drawing to us even when we don't deserve it. We simply ask one thing. Keep doing it. It is in the power and the promise of Jesus' name 
the living hope alive and well. And we pray and say thank you for hearing us. Amen.